Book the First, Part Seven of A Laodicean by Thomas Hardy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evans. Book the First, Part Seven. At the sound of a new voice, the lady in the bower started, as he could see by her outline through the crevices of the woodwork and creepers. The minister looked surprised. You will lend me your Bible, sir, to assist my memory, he continued. The minister held out the Bible with some reluctance, but he allowed Somerset to take it from his hand. The latter, stepping upon a large moss-covered stone which stood near, and laying his hat on a flat beech bough that rose and fell behind him, pointed to the minister to seat himself on the grass. The minister looked at the grass, and looked up again at Somerset, but did not move. Somerset, for the moment, was not observing him. His new position had turned out to be exactly opposite the open side of the bower, and now for the first time he beheld the interior. On the seat was the woman who had stood beneath his eyes in the chapel, the Paula of Mr. Stancy's enthusiastic eulogies. She wore a summer hat, beneath which her fair curly hair formed a thicket round her forehead. It would be impossible to describe her as she then appeared. Not sensuous enough for an Aphrodite, and too subdued for a Hebe, she would yet, with the adjunct of doves or nectar, have stood sufficiently well for either of those personages, if presented in a pink morning light, and with mythological scarcity of attire. Half in surprise, she glanced up at him, and, knowing her eyes again, as if no surprise were ever let influence her actions for more than a moment, she sat on as before, looking past Somerset's position at the view down the river, visible for a long distance before her, till it was lost under the bending trees. Somerset turned over the leaves of the minister's Bible and began, In the first epistle to the Corinthians, the seventh chapter and the fourteenth verse, Here the young lady raised her eyes in spite of her reserve, but it being apparently too much labour to keep them raised, allowed her glance to subside upon her jet necklace, extending it with the thumb of her left hand. Sir! said the Baptist excitedly. I know that passage well. It is the last refuge of the pedo-baptists. I foresee your argument. I have met it dozens of times, and it is not worth that snap of the fingers. It is worth no more than the argument from circumcision, or the suffer-little-children argument. Then turn to the sixteenth chapter of the Acts, and the twenty-third. That too, cried the minister, is answered by what I said before. I perceive, sir, that you adopt the method of a special pleader, and not that of an honest inquirer. Is it, or is it not, an answer to my proofs from the eighth chapter of the Acts, the thirty-sixth and thirty-seventh verses, the sixteenth of March, sixteenth uh, verse, second of Acts, forty-first verse, the tenth and the forty-seventh verse, or the eighteenth and eighth verse? Very well, then. Let me prove the point by other reasoning by the argument from apostolic tradition. He threw the minister's book upon the grass, and proceeded with his contention, which comprised a fairly good exposition of the earliest practice of the church and inferences therefrom. When he reached this point, an interest in his off-hand arguments was revealed by the mobile bosom of Miss Paula Power, though she still occupied herself by drawing out the necklace. Testimony from Justin Martyr followed with inferences from Irenaeus in the expression Omnes enim venit per sepetemsum salvari, omnes inquam qui per eum renascunta in deum, infantes et pavilos et puros et juvenes. 
At the sound of so much seriousness, Paula turned her eyes upon the speaker with attention. He next adduced proof of the signification of Renascor in the writings of the Fathers, as reasoned by Wall, arguments from Tertullian's advice to defer the right, citations from Cyprian, Naziensen, Chrysostom and Jerome, and briefly summed up the whole matter. Somerset looked round for the minister as he concluded, but the old man, after standing face to face with the speaker, had turned his back upon him, and during the latter portions of the attack had moved slowly away. He now looked back. His countenance was full of commiserating reproach as he lifted his hand, twice shook his head, and said, In the epistle to the Philippians, first chapter and sixteenth verse, it is written that there are some who preach in contention and not sincerely. And in the second epistle of Timothy, fourth chapter and fourth verse, attention is drawn to those whose ears refuse the truth and are turned unto fables. I wish you good afternoon, sir, and that priceless gift, sincerity. The minister vanished behind the trees, Somerset and Miss Power being left confronting each other alone. Somerset stepped aside from the stone, hat in hand, at the same moment in which Miss Power rose from her seat. She hesitated for an instant, and said, with a pretty girlish stiffness, sweeping back the skirt of her dress to free her toes in turning, Although you are personally unknown to me, I cannot leave you without expressing my deep sense of your profound scholarship and my admiration for the thoroughness of your studies in divinity. Your opinion gives me great pleasure, said Somerset, bowing and fairly blushing. But believe me, I am no scholar and no theologian. My knowledge of the subject arises simply from the accident that some few years ago I looked into the question for a special reason. In the study of my profession I was interested in the designing of fonts and baptistries, and by a natural process I was led to investigate the history of baptism, and some of the arguments I then learnt up still remain with me. That's the simple explanation of my erudition. If your sermons at the church only match your address today, I shall not wonder at hearing that the parishioner is at last willing to attend. It flashed upon Somerset's mind that she supposed him to be the new curate, of whose arrival he had casually heard during his sojourn at the inn. Before he could bring himself to correct an error to which, perhaps more than to anything else, was owing the friendliness of her manner, she went on as if to escape the embarrassment of silence. I need hardly say that I at least do not doubt the sincerity of your arguments. And nevertheless, I was not altogether sincere, he answered. He was silent. Then why should you have delivered such a defence of me? She asked with simple curiosity. Somerset involuntarily looked in her face for his answer. Paula again teased the necklace. Would you have spoken so eloquently on the other side if I, if occasion had served? She inquired shyly. Perhaps I would. Another pause till she said, I too was insincere. You? I was. In what way? In letting him and you think I had been at all influenced by authority, scriptural or patristic. May I ask, why then did you decline the ceremony the other evening? Ah, you too have heard of it, she said quickly. No. What then? I saw it. She blushed and looked down the river. I cannot give my reasons, she said. Uh, of course not, said Somerset. 
Abu gave a great deal to possess real logical dogmatism. So would I. There was a moment of embarrassment. She wanted to get away, but did not precisely know how. He would have withdrawn, had she not said, as if rather oppressed by her conscience and evidently still thinking him the curate. I cannot but feel that Mr. Woodwell's heart had been unnecessarily wounded. The ministers? Yes, he is single-mindedness itself. He gives away nearly all he has to the poor. He works among the sick, carrying them necessaries with his own hands. He teaches the ignorant men and lads of the village when he ought to be resting at home till he is absolutely prostrate with exhaustion. And then he sits up at night writing encouraging letters to those poor people who formerly belonged to his congregation in the village and have now gone away. He always offends ladies because he can't help speaking the truth as he believes it. But he hasn't offended me. Her feelings had risen towards the end so that she finished quite warmly and turned aside. I was not in the least aware that he was such a man, murmured Somerset, looking wistfully after the minister. Whatever you may have done, I fear that I have grievously wounded a worthy man's heart from an idle wish to engage in a useless, unbecoming, dull, last-century argument. Not dull, she murmured, for it interested me. Somerset accepted her correction willingly. It was ill-considered of me, however, he said and in his distress he has forgotten his Bible. He went and picked up the worn volume for where it lay on the grass. You can easily win him to forgive you by just following and returning the book to him, she observed. I will, said the young man impulsively, and, bowing to her, he hastened along the river brink after the minister. He at length saw his friend before him, leaning over the gate which led from the private path into a lane, his cheek resting on the palm of his hand, with every outward sign of abstraction. He was not conscious of Somerset's presence till the latter touched him on the shoulder. Never was a reconciliation effected more readily. When Somerset said that, fearing his motives might be misconstrued, he had followed to assure the minister of his goodwill and esteem, Mr. Woodwell held out his hand and proved his friendship in return by preparing to have the controversy on the religious differences over again from the beginning with exhaustive detail. Somerset evaded this with alacrity, and once having won his companion to other subjects, he found that the austere man had a smile as pleasant as an infant's on the rare moments when he indulged in it, moreover that he was warmly attached to Miss Power. Though she gives me more trouble than all the rest of the Baptist church in this district, he said, I love her as my own daughter, but I am sadly exercised to know what she is at heart. Heaven supply me with fortitude to contest her wild opinions and intractability. But she has sweet virtues, and her conduct at times can be most enduring. I believe it, said Somerset, with more fervour than mere politeness required. Sometimes I think those stancy towers and lands will be a curse to her. The spirit of old papistical times still lingers in the nooks of those silent walls, like a bad odour in a still atmosphere, dulling the iconoclastic emotions of the true Puritan. It would be a pity indeed if she were to be tainted by the very situation that her father's indomitable energy created for her. Do not be concerned about her, said Somerset gently. She's not a pedo-baptist at heart, although she seems so. Mr. Wilbur placed his finger on Somerset's arm, saying, 
if she is not a Peter Baptist or Episcopalian, if she is not vulnerable to the medieval influences of her mansion, lands and new acquaintance, it is because she has been vulnerable to what is worse, to doctrines beside which the errors of Peter Baptists, Episcopalians, Roman Catholics are but as air. How? You astonish me. Have you heard in your metropolitan experience of a curious body of new knights, as they think themselves? The minister whispered a name to his listener, as if he were fearful of being overheard. Oh no, said Somerset, shaking his head and smiling at the minister's horror. She's not that. At least, I think not. She's a, a woman, nothing more. Don't fear for her, all will be well. The poor old man sighed. I love her as my own. I will say no more. Somerset was now in haste to go back to the lady, to ease her apparent anxiety as to the result of his mission, and also because time seemed heavy in the loss of her discreet voice and soft, buoyant look. Every moment of delay began to be as two. But the minister was too earnest in his converse to see his companion's haste, and it was not till perception was forced upon him by the actual retreat of Somerset that he remembered time to be a limited commodity. He then expressed his wish to see Somerset at his house to tea any afternoon he could spare, and receiving the other's promise to call as soon as he could, allowed the younger man to set out for the summer-house, which he did at a smart pace. When he reached it he looked around, and found she was gone. Somerset was immediately struck by his own lack of social dexterity. Why did he act so readily on the whimsical suggestion of another person, and follow the minister, when he might have said that he would call on Mr. Woodwell tomorrow, and, making himself known to Miss Power as the visiting architect of whom she had heard from Mr. Stancy, have had the pleasure of attending her to the castle. That's what any other man would have had wit enough to do, he said. There then arose the question whether her dispatching him after the minister was such an admirable act of good nature to a good man as it at first seemed to be. Perhaps it was simply a manoeuvre for getting rid of himself and he remembered his doubt whether a certain light in her eyes when she inquired concerning his sincerity were innocent earnestness or the reverse. As the possibility of levity crossed his brain, his face warmed. It pained him to think that a woman so interesting could condescend to a trick of even so mild a complexion as that. He wanted to think her the soul of all that was tender and noble and kind. The pleasure of setting himself to win a minister's goodwill was a little tarnished now. End of Book the First, Part Seven.